Hey there, it's uh, Chicago Slim, AKA Dr. Dan, the blues doctor. Uh, you're hanging out with Talking Blues and we are rocking and rolling for some fun today. Hey, stay tuned. I just remembered that you have a radio background. Shh. <laughs> so, um, Let's let's start from the very beginning. No, let's talk about your dogs. I mean, you have six dogs. What kind of dogs do you have? Well, I am um, I'm a dog lover. My wife and I are dog lovers, so we um, we each have dogs that reflect us. So I I like I like smart dogs. I like dogs that can um, I can talk to. And my dog is a standard poodle, and uh, his name is Holmes, named after Groove Holmes, the uh, organ player. And uh, when I play guitar in the house he uh he sings so the five others are your wife's dogs well my wife has a yorkie our daughters got a labradoodle that they abandoned so we had to adopt that one and then our other daughter is here moved in with us uh, looking to buy a house nearby so she brought her three bernadoodles bernie's water dogs and uh poodles mix so uh, six huge dogs and a little Yorkie. And um, I can tell you that that's a lot of crap to clean up every day. <laughs> and a lot of walking, I would imagine. Yeah, they, um, they're awesome. They, uh, they, they are pretty self-contained. They, they play in the yard and uh, they do like to go for walks. They're extremely gentle, but they're huge. I mean, uh, I'm 6'11", and one of the uh, dogs is named Blue. And when he stands on his hind legs and puts his paws on me, we're looking eye to eye. Wow. 6'11", and I understand that your first love was basketball. Oh, yeah. I got a basketball Jones, for sure. So tell me about that, because I presume that it was quite serious. Oh, very serious. Well, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant. My family immigrated here from the uh, former Yugoslavia. My, uh, my dad was an Olympic rower for their 1960 team in Rome. And so he was always very athletic. And my mom too, my dad's about six, five. My mom is 5'11", and she's also quite the athlete. And when we uh, immigrated to Chicago, you know, it's always difficult to fit in, even though um, I didn't have an accent. I mean, I spoke English, I spoke three languages, but you know, I had this funny, funny last name, Ivankovic that nobody really um, knew where that was from or what it was. And we always look for ways to fit in. And sports was something that I just sort of uh, fell into and um, was really good at and got to the point where I had hundreds of uh, college scholarships offered. And I was a high school, all state and all American player. And uh, Unfortunately, uh, being so young, I was actually about two years younger than everyone in my class because I had been advanced early for academics. And I just, even though I was tall, I was big. I don't think my body was quite the, uh, at the level of maturity playing with a lot of the guys. So it just, it wore down from all the playing and I got injured. It was a career ending injury. And that was the uh, end of that. Um, at 6'11 and also being in all state, did you, did you think that being a pro basketball player is a possibility? You know, uh, it's different than today, just because um, 
there's a lot of very tall people right now. Um, seems like uh, back then being 6'11", there weren't that many. And that was, you know, I, I couldn't tell people I wanted to play badminton or water polo. I was sort of, you're going to play basketball and you're going to go pro. That was sort of the, the pathway. I didn't really decide yay or nay. That's just what I was supposed to do because I was 6'11". So it must have been devastating to have that injury and realize that your dream of pursuing basketball was no longer. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, you're 17 years old and um, everything that you've been told you're supposed to do was suddenly, it wasn't like it happened over a period, it just overnight, a blink of an eye, it was gone. So that was a uh, pretty pretty intense and pretty emotional thing to have that be understood that that's something that's not in the cards anymore for you. This eventually led you to pick up the guitar or were you playing the guitar before then? I desired to play the guitar. Um, what I actually played was a violin. Uh, by the time I was injured, I already had uh, 12 years of violin, orchestra, piano, music theory and um the girls that were going to the rock and roll shows were way hotter than the girls in the orchestra so i was pretty committed to learn guitar but i <laughs> played guitar um how how easy was that transition because they're very two very different instruments with different approaches absolutely um so for me i learned how to play guitar um by basically taking my violin music and uh, and just sort of uh, repurposing it to different um, staff and uh, just you know playing Bach violin concertos on guitar. So I just I was learning where the notes were. I was playing the scales. I was learning the uh, passages, and I really didn't understand much about chords. I was just sort of learning how to play the notes. That came pretty intuitively. Um, the cording was a lot more complicated because um, the voicings and playing chords, that was more based off piano. So the guitar was, I was interested in the violin part, which would be the right hand on the piano, the rhythm and the chordal part, which would be the left hand on the piano. That really didn't, a violin, you know, classically didn't involve chords a lot. It was more about melody. So I, I learned guitar playing melody and I guess I did it. I, I probably should have gone into heavy metal because I came right out basically soloing. Uh, no rhythm, soloing. I didn't have any pedals or amps, but I probably should have because I came out into guitar straight as a soloist and I had to learn how to play rhythm. That was trickier and actually the funnest part of guitar. What kind of music were you playing at that point? Um, so at the time, um, you know, I was in a lot of the solo work, the, the people that I really enjoyed, um, I had every one of Yasha Heifetz uh, records. Uh, I had Bach sets of uh, Beethoven, Bach, Tchaikovsky. It was really, you know, Firebird Suite. All the things that um, I was listening to at the time was uh, classical. And then, like I said, the, the women were much hotter on the rock and roll side. So I said, how can I make violin rock and roll, which was very tough. So I, I did a lot of research when I was in high school and I discovered people like Sugarcane Harris, Papa John Creech, and 
I actually was pretty good at the, um, I was a big Frank Zappa fan and uh, Jean-Luc Ponty was somebody who I um, really admired. He was a very gifted um, melodic player. And the fact that he played with Zappa made him cool to me. And so we had a, a group that did, um, you know, songs like Aurora and, you know, just anything that I could do, but it, it was just not, you know, it, a lot of the kind of crossover jazz fusion guys in the seventies and eighties personality wise didn't really gel with me. I get along with everybody, but the, um, you know, from a, from a mental headspace kind of thing, I tried even um, Charlie Daniels, um, you know, uh, Devil Went Down in Georgia, um, South's Gonna Do It Again, and, uh, and it was cool, but it just, guitar is far cooler, and um, I always dreamed of guitar, and I think when I got injured, that was the one thing that, A, saved my life, because um, I went down a pretty pretty deep uh, pathway of depression being injured. And I just, um, I needed to have something. I had all this free time and guitar kind of became, became my, my uh, lifeboat, my rescue, you know? So at 17, you're not too far away from deciding on your university path. And I presume sometime, I don't know if it has anything to do with your injury, but I presume you chose the path of being a doctor. How did that come about? Well, when I when I was recruited, I actually accepted a, a scholarship to play basketball at uh, Northwestern University in Evanston. That was the one place that I was um, I was accepted into both the electrical engineering, computer science, which had a, a dual um, degree program with the School of Music, and then I also got accepted into the uh, what they call the HPME, the Honors Program in Medical Education. And I, and I went down the path of going into the uh, medical field. And it was a very crazy universe that uh, led me to Northwestern because um, originally I was committed to play um, basketball for Bob Knight at Indiana. And uh, my mom shut that down kind of quickly. She said, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, and what, what uh, you know, when, when uh, it was a group decision with my parents and me to go to Northwestern, but... I was kind of a little bit resistant to it because they didn't have as great of a team. But when you know, I got injured, I tried to play. I couldn't really do it. And I found all these things at Northwestern that were amazing. I mean, the sports teams are great, but the medical school was incredible. And there were all these things that were in undergrad that I never even imagined. This whole universe got opened up to me when I, um, when I got injured and I had this vacuum of... Uh, things that I could do now that I had time. And so in the undergrad universe, I, um, you, you wouldn't believe the people that I was exposed to and the things that I got to do that led me to the blues. It was like um, almost like some preordained like crazy star alignment because uh, the person in the animal laboratories. So we had to do laboratory. We had physics lab, we had biology lab, we had different labs that involved, you know, animals before it became politically incorrect to do that. But the guy that ran it was this older gentleman. And I was in the lab one night, I think I was playing some eight track of Freddie King. And I was by myself and I was playing it pretty loud. And he walked in, he said, uh, who's out here playing blues? 
I said, well, dude, I'm, I'm the only guy here and it's my radio. It's me. <laughs> and so I thought he was trying to make conversation, real sweet guy. He said, well, you know, um, uh, I own this club on the South side. And I said, yeah, whatever. Right. Sure. You own a club on the South side. Uh, tell me more. And he goes, you know, um, you come by and you, um, you know, just bring your guitar and uh, we'll, we'll see you there. And I said, okay, you're, you invited me to go to the South side on a club down on 43rd street and you own this club, which I'm saying bullshit, right? I'm saying he's just making conversation and talking typical old man jive. And, uh, but you know what, being naive and uh, I said, okay, I'm going. So I got my guitar on a Monday night. I went down to 43rd street. I got a ride deep on the South side on uh, Martin Luther King drive and 43rd street. And I pull up to the club, the club's called the checkerboard lounge. And um, I said, man, there's no way that this guy is going to be here. There's no, I'm going to show up and either they're going to steal my guitar or they're going to beat the shit out of me, or they're going to do both. And I, uh, I go to the door and I was greeted by a couple of very nice security guards. And I just said, um, uh, Mr. Thurman invited me here with my guitar tonight to jam night. He said, well, come on in. Mr. Thurman's right over there. And I'm like, wow, he's there. So I look over at the bar and um, there's Elsie Thurman behind the bar pouring drinks. And there's only like six or seven people around the bar. But it was Buddy Guy, it was Junior Wells, Magic Slim, Johnny Dollar, and Lefty Diz, and my future um, bandmate, Killer Ray Allison. And all I could say was, fuck me. Excuse my French there. But I, um, I couldn't believe it. It was uh, mind-blowing. Crazy. So at this point, how I know you listen to your Freddie King music, but... How much were you into blues? Like, it sounded like you went from classical to more rock and, and maybe even jazz rock or whatever with Frank Zappa. But tell me how much, how aware were you of blues at that point? Well, what happened, um, so Northwestern has this incredible um, college radio station that's won numerous awards called WNUR. And... Uh, when I got injured, the, the athletic department was trying to keep me sort of engaged and occupied doing something sports related. So they said, why don't you go down to WNUR and tell the manager you'd like to work on some of the broadcasts, you know, for football, for basketball and see what happens. And I went down there and introduced myself and uh, he said, yeah, OK, we'll get you we'll get you plugged into that. But do you know anything about blues? Because I got an open blues show that needs someone to cover it. I'm like, oh, yeah, man, I'm an expert. I know all of, I didn't know a damn thing about it. Is when I, I was a freshman. And I said, he goes, well, would you do it Sunday night from 7 to midnight? Yeah, man, I got it. No problem. So I went to the first show. I didn't know a damn thing, but I, I, I'm a pretty quick study. And uh, I was able to put together a five-hour show, uh, got all the background. And they literally have thousands of records down there. So between the day he hired me and the show, I was down at the radio station reading every liner note. Um, going to the library and checking out. So I became like, um, I got a master's degree in blues in about a week, getting ready for my show. And then every week it kind of built upon that. So I, I met L.C. Thurman probably about midway through my freshman year when I had already been 
working down at the um, radio station. So my immersion in the blues was like pretty quick, pretty profound. And um, it was, like I said, it was a godsend because um, I didn't know about the relevance of Chicago to the genre. I didn't know about the electrification of blues. I didn't know, you know, how I knew the name Muddy Waters because I had seen him opening up and playing with Eric Clapton when I was um, in high school. But once again, I just thought, who's this guy, Muddy Waters? I knew the name. But as I delved and became more of a disciple of the genre, I developed a deeper understanding that I was literally in the epicenter, like where the bomb like exploded for the electrification of blues. And there were all these people and all these things that were like right there for me to uh, participate in and to enjoy like firsthand. I didn't have to read it in a book. I, I could live it. So it was um, it was a very quick descent down the rabbit hole of blues, and it was it was amazing. When did you actually connect with it? I mean, was it through the playing, or was it through listening and doing the radio show? Well, guitar was something I did to occupy my mind and my hands, and I knew I loved rock blues. I you know Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones. I was a huge fan. Eric Clapton, Robin Trower, Jeff Beck. I knew all those guys. But I only read in interviews who they were, you know, I'd read about Hubert Sumlin. I'm like, who the hell's Hubert Sumlin? And, uh, you know, when I'd hear about Otis Rush, I'd hear about Buddy Guy, Magic Sam. They were just names to me. So as I got playing and I got to, you know, meet these people, I mean, I met Magic Slim and he allowed me to jam with him when I was learning. And it was just, it became like a very transcendental kind of a thing where these names now were being connected they weren't mythical figures, Buddy Guy, Junior Wells. I mean, when you're there hanging out, drinking with them and playing with them, it's they're, they're not these kind of illusions or delusions in your brain. They're actually palpable, tangible people that kind of became my mentors. You know, they were the they were my guides, my muses. I mean, Elsie Thurman was kind of the conduit that led me to all of them. But like I said, it just as I as I became exposed to it. I just became more um, hungry to know more. And, uh, and like the knowledge was literally, it wasn't in a book, it was right before me. These were people who were like legendary practitioners that were here in the city that nobody, I mean, and so I'd ask people like, oh, how come Buddy Guy's not playing like the amphitheater or this and that? And they'd be like, Buddy who? And I, I, that was shocking to me because I definitely understood their significance as I became more immersed in it. And so that just led me down the path that I, I said, I really want to study with them. I want to learn from them. I want to understand this, uh, this musical form. And, uh, you know, it was like a never ending um, chapter. Like I had a subsection, I'd, I'd complete something and then there'd be something new. I'd meet a different person. It never stopped. I mean, Chicago was that incredible with the clubs on the South and West side. I could go every week and it was something new, a new soul food restaurant, a new musician to meet and hang out with. Uh, I had some incredible people that were my mentors. And the, the crazy thing was, um, I mean, none of them ever, nobody, Eddie Taylor Sr., um, Magic Slim, they never, they never charged me a dime to teach me. And they were just excited that 
people were interested in their music and in their story. And it was, it was amazing. I feel honored. So on that Monday uh, evening, when you went for the jam session and there you are sitting next to Junior Wells and Buddy Guy, how, how competent a guitar player were you at that point? Um, well, I, I had been um, practicing and I, and I had the, um, I had kind of the, uh, the Elmore James, you know, the, the three chord, you know, Elmore James and slide kind of thing. I had the on the one John Lee Hooker thing, but like a real, you know, dominant seventh and nine, you know, like, like a, like a real blues. I had no clue. And so the first night, I don't know if I took my guitar out of the case the first night, I literally just pulled up a chair. I asked for a pen and paper and I just started taking notes. I don't think it was probably until the fourth or fifth time that I went down there that I had the, con I mean, they invited me up and I'm like, no, no way. I don't, I don't, I'm not ready. I don't want to do this. I don't want to make a complete fool of myself. And um, kind of like with the radio show, I kind of assessed and surveyed what, what this was all about. And I realized that I wasn't ready. And uh, I went and woodshedded. I went and practiced. I went and talked to people, jammed with them. And then when I finally had the opportunity to feel confident that then a few weeks down the line, I, I got up and I, and I played in the jam and it was, it was amazing. But I, um, I mean, I was trying to make up for years because, you know, these people had been doing it since they were kids and they were 40, 50 years old. I was literally just, you know, here I am. And I was a blank slate, just like a sponge looking to absorb influence and knowledge and skill technical and so there were there were many Mondays that uh that was like my um like my laboratory the checkerboard it's amazing to me like you hear about blues jams and I just did an interview a couple of days ago with uh, somebody from Germany and how he got into the blues and how he learned about the blues at a blues jam in a small town in Germany but in your case, you go to a blues jam and we're talking some heavy duty musicians just hanging out. Oh my God. I mean, <laughs> the thing about Junior Wells, I love that guy. The guy was out of his mind. I mean, he was an international superstar who literally was there every damn Monday. Him and Lefty Diz would be there and they would literally be playing. They would be jamming, they would be playing. And, you know, they weren't getting paid a lot, but they just did it for the love of the, they just loved it. And um, to be there and just be in their presence and kind of absorb not just the music, but the their style. I mean, Junior coming in like an all purple monotone outfit or left, you know, I'm, I'm taking, um, I'm taking visual cues and making notes that these guys, I mean, these guys like are living that experience. I mean, this is not just something that they take off at the end of the gig. This is their deal. And so there, there was a lot of things about, you know, I don't, I, I, look, I'm a, I'm a musician and I'm a producer and I, I consider myself an interpreter of the, um, of the genre, um, you know, the way the rock blues guys are inspired by the music as much of the world has. There's something about being a quote unquote blues man that involves a 24 seven, 365 kind of thing. I, I couldn't do that. That wasn't, that wasn't my, um, 
existence, but geez, I was so influenced and inspired. There were things that I, that rubbed off on me that I, that I got. I mean, it, it's not just about the music. It's about the attitude. It's about the persona. Every one of those guys had like a personality and a persona that could fill up a room. And so playing blues music is one thing. Being immersed in the blues is one thing. And living the blues, that's like another. And I, and I got to observe them sort of in their element where that's, that, was their, that was their laboratory. And um, it, was, it was amazing. Truly, truly an incredible. Um, the jams were a reflection of not just the music, but the brotherhood, the camaraderie, the, the community. They created a community there. And um, it just, you know, they never really got credit for that. Um, once again, to the uh, unknown outsider, like, yeah, a bunch of black guys in the ghetto doing whatever, getting drunk. But, you know, I think to people who really understood it, and I think the Europeans were particularly um, tuned into this, they understood the, the power of it was that, you know, these little clubs, these little communities reflected um, like in a, a cultural immersion. And that was sort of where the rubber hit the road in those clubs. So the music, the food, I mean, look at the checkerboard. On a Saturday night, I'd be there. I'd be drunk off my ass. And I'd walk out the door and there'd be a woman making pig's ears to put on a sandwich. And you know, when you're hungry and you're drunk, you are willing to eat a pig ear sandwich, man. I had four pig ears with mustard and that was pretty damn good, actually. It was really good. But, but that's what I'm saying is that it, 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 it wasn't just the music. It was the whole deal was like right there. It wasn't a tourist attraction. It was like, that was it. That was the epicenter of the music. And once again, I, I just got to be, to be touched by it in a way that was super meaningful to me by people that I became great friends with and uh, very honored and thankful because that, the, the experience shaped me every bit as much as the music did. I wonder, it sounds like they were very accepting of you from the very beginning. So I think it was because, and, and I may be wrong, um, Junior was just great. Um, Junior and Lefty Diz, I did a lot of things with them, both in and out of the music side. They were just really boisterous, fun people. They accepted everybody. They were not, I, I never noticed them to be, they talked a lot of shit to me all the time, but it wasn't like mean. And then I talked shit back to them. I mean, at some point it was like a give and take. They're, they're just those kind of people. It's like a give and take. They, they were nice and cool to everyone. But I think Magic Slim was very accepting to me because he was about six foot seven. And um, he, I, I, I read later and he told me how, you know, when he first came to Chicago, he wasn't good enough. He came to Chicago to try and break in and he went back, back down South. He's like, oh, I can't, I can't do this. So when he came up, you know, he became Hound Dog Taylor's uh, rhythm guitar player. And so I think he was always very um, nice to me. He called me Slim Jr. It's kind of how the name uh, evolved. But um, I think he was probably aware that I was trying really hard and I was learning and he would always, you know, give me that little kick in the ass to try and uh, encourage me. He, he was probably the, the reason that um, I was able to kind of make the leap and um, transcend um, 
to the point where I really felt comfortable playing on stage. He he was probably the singular person. Junior was great. Like I, I mean, Junior dragged me up. I didn't know what the hell key they were in, what the hell they were doing. He just kept like jumping around, screaming in the mic and going, woo, you know, like, and it, I, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And it sounded really good at the end. Everyone's like, oh, no, man, good job. I'm like, what the fuck did I just do? And Junior made everybody in the band sound that cool because he was like a meteor. All the attention was on him. You could have been playing in totally the wrong key. You could have been playing the wrong song. And it still would have come out cool because Junior was that amazing, you know? But it was a, it was fun, man. I mean, you learn by fucking up, right? You learn by making mistakes. And it's not a mistake if you can resolve it properly. And it's not a mistake if you stop making the mistake. It's just, it's a learning process. And they, they were very patient with uh, me learning. So I, like I said, the fact that they did it, I, I can't thank them enough. And I, back then I couldn't thank them enough. I felt so, um, felt so humble that these guys actually were my friends that I, I would always come to them and go, hey, is there anything that I can do for you? Um, like, you know, I mean, I come there and I buy a round or two of drinks, but then they buy me a round of drinks. And like, what can I do for you guys? This is like, you're, you're saving my life. What can I um, offer you that, um, that you need? And uh, what I discovered was they needed health care. Let me just go back a little bit. At what point did you feel really comfortable being on stage after your initial trip to the the checkerboard lounge and then at the same time you know what were your goals because you're obviously pursuing a medical career i don't know how seriously you were thinking about a musical career were you no not at all i wasn't thinking about a musical career i wasn't thinking about a radio career um i just kind of went with the flow because you know when i was playing basketball i was putting in six to eight hours a day in addition to going to school, doing homework and, um, you know, living that life. So I had a, a big void. So for me to go and, you know, jam and to go practice and to go be on the radio, that still took far less time than what basketball took. You know, you, you kind of get, I, I'm not going to say the word brainwashed, but you get programmed into just understanding that this is your life. And when you're not doing it, you're painfully aware that you're not doing it. And all this time is not being filled. So, um, you know, I would say that um, parallel paths were happening, uh, you know, playing guitar continued to advance. And by after about a year, I felt really comfortable, um, you know, just getting up and doing whatever. I mean, I, I like Magic Slim was like a human jukebox. He knew hundreds of songs and I was just learning songs. I mean, learning his playlist, learning songs and whatever Junior and Slim did. I mean, that was a lot of overlap. So I figured out the songs, I knew the names, I knew the changes. And after a while, you realize that they're pretty comparable, just maybe with a different rhythmic or um, turnaround. And, um, but likewise in radio, um, I had no clue in radio when I started. And after a year, I was becoming pretty proficient. I had record labels calling me, setting up interviews with their artists, asking me to submit my playlist to these magazines and stuff. So as I got into it, I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. And I, I wouldn't mind doing this uh, as a gig. This would be kind of cool. You know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think that the um, reality would exist, but um, I did pursue it with a fervor and a passion 
in the same way that I would try to um, pursue my medical career. I was just very driven and committed because the alternative was having this huge hole in my life that almost like, you know, just was devastating. So I did that to escape my loss and it made me um, work that much harder. So I, I didn't drink. I didn't really, you know, I drank when they gave me wild turkey. That was like the magic slims that I would not play well if I didn't drink wild turkey. And so did Lefty Diz. And I said, well, I'm drinking wild turkey, goddammit. But I never, I didn't drink it outside of the club. I didn't smoke. I didn't do drugs. And um, so, you know, the radio and music were parallel. And I, I got to the point where I got a couple of professional um, on-air slots at the commercial radio stations in Chicago, in addition to doing the college gig. And then I was getting um, getting called to, you know, play more. And then, um, you know, the opportunities as a musician just evolved until um, I connected with Otis Rush to play with him. And so when that happened, I'm like, wow, this is like some serious stuff for a dude that's only doing this as a hobby, right? I mean, maybe, um, maybe I could do this for a career. I don't know. But um, I mean, it got so serious that I, at some point in my medical training, I took a six-year break to actually pursue radio and music full time. Wow. Was that risky? Um, well, what I did, um, so, you know, the, the medical schools, it's kind of a weird thing. They, they, they do want you to be well-rounded. They want you to be relatable. They want you to connect with not just, you know, one demographic of patients. If you're going to be a doctor, you got to be able to connect with um, all ethnicities, all demographics, you got to be, to be a healer is kind of like being a great musician. You have to be, you have to basically be approachable. You have to be able to connect with everyone within a few seconds. So I simply told them I'm really having a great time doing this music. It's rounding me out and giving me opportunities to um, sort of feed my um, passion as being a healer. And I'd like to ride this out and see where I can take it. And they said, well, you're going to have to come in every year and give us a report of what you're doing. And uh, if you want to continue taking time off, we'll, we'll approve it based on what you're doing. But if you're sitting around at home watching TV and doing nothing, um, we're not going to accept that. So, you know, I, I came in every year and I give a report saying, you know, I played with this musician. I'm on the air at WCKG. I'm working at WNUR. I have a syndicated blues show. They thought it was great. Like every year, I think I was, you know, I wasn't the only medical student taking time off, but I think I was their favorite because I had the most ridiculous stories of what I was doing. Like the other guys were coming, yeah, I'm doing a laboratory research project and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, um, I'm doing this. I'm playing here. We did gigs. I'm touring there. We did this recording. I'm on the air. And they, they just thought like, just they, when I leave, I'm sure they were shaking their heads. And each year, my hair and my beard got longer. I think I had my beard down to almost my um, my nipples and I had a ponytail. And every time I would leave, I'd be like, they're just like going, wow, crazy. And then, so the year I, I was gonna come back, I, they knew I was gonna come back because I got a haircut and I shaved my beard. So, but that was six years later. And, and what made you decide that you wanted to come back and, and reacquaint yourself with the medical field. And I guess the other question is, you are now a trauma and spine surgeon, correct? Correct, yeah. How did you decide on that speciality? Well, you know, when I was a basketball player, just like everyone was pushing me to be an NBA player because I was 6'11", 
everybody was pushing me to be a sports medicine doctor. And I thought, so now I'm injured. I got a clean slate. I'm re-entering medicine with an open mind. And um, having been in these very disparate areas of Chicago, the South side, the West side, a lot of poverty, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, discrimination and healthcare access. I had a, I mean, the, the blues opened my eyes to the fact that it's not a level playing field here. And as I um, came back to medicine, part of the thing of being a trauma surgeon was that a lot of these folks in these areas who are injured, um, they don't get good care. And um, I witnessed that with these celebrated blues musicians. Many of them didn't have doctors. They didn't have insurance. They go to Europe, play in front of 10, 15,000 people and come back and live in the projects, you know? And so I spent, even though I wasn't a doctor yet, I spent a lot of time working with the blues musicians to make sure that, you know, they never listened to me about quitting smoking, but I would identify that they needed a doctor. I would check their blood pressure. I'd check them out for diabetes and uh, make sure that they got um, proper referral for care. And the trauma part just had to do with, I, I developed an interest in um, public health. And I, I think I was talking about the terminology of, um, healthcare disparities long before it was called healthcare disparities. I mean, we, we understood in being in these communities that black people don't have as good access to care. They don't live as long. They're not as healthy. I mean, it, it happened during COVID. You know, everyone's like, oh my God, you know, black people and brown people are dying at much, much higher rates due to COVID. I'm like, well, that's like a, a repetition of the cycle. They, they, they have more heart disease. They have more cancer. They don't do as well with this and that. So Understanding these um, observations that I had were, were pretty powerful. It, it sculpted my, um, the dynamic of what I wanted to do. And uh, I became a trauma and spine surgeon with the intention of working at the Cook County Hospital in Chicago, which was predominantly a, a uh, hospital that served uh, ethnic minorities in the Chicago area. And I did that for a decade after I completed my training. Uh, but a lot of that was driven by the powerful um, imagery and experiences that I had working with these blues musicians. When you decided to go back to school full time after the six year hiatus, um, what was that like for you? And how, how long did you, how many years did you have to go back to complete your medical studies? Well, I did, I did one and a half years when I went back. Um, I had to complete my clinical work. And um, I was actually ready to quit when I was done with my clinical work because I, like, I love Northwestern. It's a phenomenal school and hospital, but most of what I was seeing over there was um, well-to-do uh, Gold Coast residents of Chicago. And as a student, I, I got to do very little, most any student, we, did, we, we pushed, pushed the wall up and, ob and observed. And uh, it wasn't until my final rotation where I got to go to Cook County and um, like for 30 days, I didn't have to wear a tie. I didn't have to wear a suit. I wore scrubs and was in the trenches, like rocking and rolling. And I said, this is incredible. And uh, I want to be here. So I asked to have my internship be at Cook County Hospital. For 365 days, I was on call every other day. I think eight of the residents quit. I just thought it was the most amazing 
It was in 1995. It was the hottest summer. There were hundreds of people. 800 people died of heat. They overwhelmed the morgue. There were 18-wheel refrigerated trucks circling county with bodies waiting for the coroner to evaluate them. Uh, trauma was through the roof, gunshots. I was totally in my element. I mean, it was like people hated it there. All my fellow residents were like begging and bribing other residents to not go. And I was there the whole year because I just thought it was amazing. I, I helped thousands of people. I did all these things. And I said, this, I could see doing this for, uh, for my, for my life. You know, it was, uh, you know, we're, we're all uh, attracted to different things. Trauma, just something that I, um, I couldn't get enough of. And um, it was, it was just amazing. And uh, spine trauma and general trauma, we, uh, we had, I mean, it was, uh, it was hard, it was intense, but never, never did I have a day that was like the day before. I mean, I couldn't be the kind of doctor that every day came and okay, today we're gonna do three knee scopes. Tomorrow, we're gonna do three more knee scopes. I would slip my wrist, man. I mean, I like, um, I like puzzles, I like challenges and every day not knowing what, what hand was gonna be dealt to you. I was, um, that's all I wanted. What do, what do you know that you're a good doctor, that you can deal with all those situations? How does that happen? You don't know. I mean, you're every day you're on a high wire, riding a unicycle with a bamboo stick with two women on each end of the stick and a monkey sitting on their hat with a bucket of turds throwing them at you, trying to get you to fall off the high wire, man. You have no idea. It's um, that's the challenge. And um, it's the, the survival. I mean, you don't know if you're good. At the end of the day, all that matters is that your patient survives and they like you for your effort. I have tens of thousands of patients. I don't know if I'm a good, bad, or indifferent doctor, but I know I've got tens of thousands of patients who um, follow me everywhere. Like there's no other doctor they want but me um, because they say I hear them. They say I see them. They say I get them. So. I don't know how you discern if it's good. I mean, obviously the outcomes are exceptional. I mean, in these minority populations, the expected outcome is in the bottom 15%. Ours are in the 90 plus percent. So we're doing something right. But you never think, are you good or bad? You think, am I connected to these patients? Do they, because whether I do a good or a bad job, if they don't listen to what I tell them to do, it's going to fall apart. I have to have buy-in. I have to have connection. I spent a lot of time educating my patients to understand what their role is in all of this. I mean, you know, over 70% of my patients, when I sit down with them in an office setting, turn on my computer, show them their x-rays, review surgeries and all this, they go, you know, doc, nobody's ever talked to me like this before. Isn't that tragic? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, um, once they feel that, um, I'm treating them as an equal instead of like, you know, here I am, this mighty doctor, and here you are, this, you know, terrible, poor patient. How are you not going to feel like shit, right? I treat them as equals. Um, I give them all my cell phone. They can text me whenever they need me, and they, they don't abuse it. And um, that, I think that makes you a good doctor when um, you have 
a laundry list of patients that have come with very complex issues that you helped transform their lives and gotten them back to their um, state where they're functional and they're happy. And that uh, you've established a connection and developed a relationship where um, you are trusted. I mean, I mean, I got to ask myself all the time, how the hell did a six foot 11 Croatian immigrant end up with one of the largest minority medical practices in the country? I mean, the, the black community, I think in general, minority communities tend to be a little bit distrusting because they know how they get treated. But once, um, once you're the guy and they decide that you're the dude, you're the dude. So, um, you know, I get patients that um, will come in and um, they will ask me to do their uncle's open heart surgery. And I'm like, but I'm not, I'm not a heart surgeon. They go, but we don't trust anybody but you. And so it's, it's just one of those type of things where part of being a doctor is different than becoming a healer. I would imagine that finishing your medical school studies would be quite intense. Was music still a big part of that during those years? Absolutely. Um, I can't tell you how many times security came up to my dorm to turn my guitar down. Um, yes, but the, the crazy thing was that the medical campus for Northwestern was downtown and it was two blocks away from the radio station I worked at. So it was kind of, and the recording studio that I worked at as an engineer was two blocks in the other direction. So it was kind of cool. The minute I'd get done with um, lecture or lab, I'd go run across to Universal Recording or I'd go run down to WCKG, uh, the radio station. And, um, you know, I was fortunate that all these things just magically happened for me. I didn't predict them. I didn't anticipate them. But and and Elsie Thurman, my my um, my conduit to the blues. When I graduated from undergrad, he got promoted to run the medical labs at the medical school, the animal labs at the medical school. He was in charge, so he like we like he was connected to me my whole way through. He was like my guide. It was this is like kind of ridiculous. It's crazy. Yeah, I, but I, I couldn't have sat down with a, a bag of weed and a bottle of hooch and come up with a strategy better than that. I mean, it's just the way it unfolded, very um, crazy. So even when I was in school, these things were made available to me and they stayed in my life and they stayed connected. So it was, it was almost like um, whatever force was um, guiding it said that you need to be here. You can't not have music in your um, existence. So what is it about you, you think, and your musical abilities that attracted these legendary musicians to, for you to work with Otis Rush? I had no business playing with Otis Rush. I had no business playing with Buddy Guy. I had no business um, playing with Junior and any of these guys. I had no business being on a stage with them at the point of my career. I didn't have any impressive resume. I didn't have... What I had was they liked me, they trusted me, they thought I was a good guy, and that I learned quickly. I was just some young, punk-ass 22, 23-year-old. You know, what, what did I bring to the table, right? What was, there was nothing, but I was, I was, um, I was immersed. I was into it. And um, they were my senseis. They were my mentors. And 
you know, pretty much I availed myself to them because I would, I was deferential and respectful of what they were giving me. I didn't do drugs. I didn't, at no point did I ever fall out on stage, you know, and I didn't pass out in the dressing room with a needle in my arm. You know, I was reliable. And I think at that, at that stage of my career, maybe they saw the potential in me. I have no idea. I don't know. Um, but I had, there was absolutely no reason I should have been playing on stage with these guys, being in their band, um, being, but I, there was obviously a reason why I was in their lives. There's obviously a reason why I connected with them. Killer Ray Allison, um, 20 years later, I mean, we stayed friends from when I was young, but 20 years later, we formed a band together. And this is the Chicago Blues All-Stars. That was out of those connections and those relationships where, um, and I didn't even know, like when Killer, <laughs> he was the premier drummer. He was the drummer. I mean, he was the guy. I had no idea when I called him that he quit drumming. Uh, I said, Killer, um, let, let's get together and jam. And, um, you know, let's try and figure out how to put this band together. We spent hours on the phone kind of brainstorming. And uh, we showed up to the checkerboard lounge to uh, rehearse. LC let us use the club for rehearsal. And he showed up with a guitar and an amp. I'm like, where the fuck are your drums? He goes, oh, shit, man, I quit playing drums, man. Fuck drums. I don't want to do it anymore. Like, what do you mean? You're the best fucking drummer in the world. And you just fucking ain't playing drums. Are you crazy? He goes, no, man, I just don't feel like it anymore. I'm like, well, fuck, okay, you're a guitar player, I'm a guitar player, let's play. But I, I had no idea. But that's how this stuff works. And I guess he couldn't get any gigs because nobody would accept him as a guitar player. They would only accept him as a drummer. And he didn't, you know, in his mind said, I want to be, I want to sing and I want to play guitar. And I, I said, absolutely, man. I think that's a great idea. I just didn't know. And I said, so... He did a couple of the rehearsals. He brought his um, drum kit and uh, he got this crazy leopard skin drum kit that he brought. And Elsie said, the hell's Killer doing with his drums? I go, because he's the best fucking drummer in the world. Why wouldn't he have his drums? He goes, man, Killer don't play drums with nobody these days. I go, he goes, he must be your brother, man. I said, <laughs> you know, I mean, I just asked him and he did it, you know, but I think, um, I think it's just a matter of timing on that, but Killer um, and I, uh, came from a place where maybe he wasn't being accepted because he was a uh, guitar player now and everyone wanted to accept him as a drummer. And I wanted to be uh, accepted as a musician and people were only kind of associating me with being a doctor, you know? And I think, um, you know, in this life, we write the script and what we choose to be, but that doesn't mean that everybody will accept it. But since we came together and we, kind of fed off each other's energy and created a really cool entity, people did accept us. But, um, you know, it, it just, it's just a tricky, everything's about timing and everything is about your past feeding into your present and your future. I couldn't have known that years before that Ray and I would be in a band. I couldn't have known that, you know, um, couldn't have known that Lefty Diz and I would have gotten together on some advertising um, uh, murals and music when I was working with advertisers um, on the radio side. I mean, you, you draw on your connections and all these sort of tangential points led me back to this one night 
of walking into the checkerboard, not having a clue at all about playing and being accepted by a bunch of people that didn't judge me for not being a great guitar player. They didn't judge me for being white. They didn't judge me for being anything other than they liked me. They thought I was a good guy. And I think, I think in all these pieces, um, the common thread was that I think people don't acknowledge how accepting the blues community has been historically. And I believe that because many of them were neglected, disrespected by the mainstream, they were much more open-minded because they must know how it felt. Magic Slim knew what it was like to be rejected. These guys knew what it was like to be black in a city that, you know, they were superstars in Europe and they were just a bunch of black guys on the South side in Chicago. No one in Chicago cared about them. So I think their experiences and mine led to a sort of symbiosis, a synergy where we were both feeling uh, similar energies in maybe different planes, but it led to acceptance and respect of each other. And so they continued to pop back in my life as did I in theirs. And uh, to me, all points on the map musical always leads back to that night at the checkerboard lounge. I mean, if you drop like a family tree, it's pretty powerful. Well, it's interesting because there's this thing that just throughout your life, it just seems like things happened, which kind of built on other things happening. I mean, maybe it's true for many people, but I presume the work that you do with the one patient um, global health initiative has something to do with your relationship to the blues. And, and you know, what I mean, like you're still building on that, the work that you do with blues musicians in healthcare. Um, I mean, this is all interconnected, or that's what it seems like from my point of view. Yeah, I mean, it, it's connected. Everything's connected. And um, I think the way it works is that you do something, you take it as far as it can go, and you still believe in that one thing. And then maybe you come back to that one thing at a different point in your life where you have more emphasis, you have more juice, you have more power to take it even further. So whereas before it was me just taking a handful of musicians to a clinic to get them medication and get them a doctor. Now it was, um, you know, during COVID, musicians couldn't work. They didn't have money. What money they had, they had to determine whether they were going to pay rent and food or they were going to... Um, pay insurance and pay medicine. It's a simple decision. You got to live, you got to eat. So their medicine and their medical um, health was being neglected. And was again, 40 years ago, I didn't have telehealth. I didn't have the internet. I didn't have Zoom. I didn't have FaceTime. So I was able to leverage my desire to make an impact for blues musicians during a pandemic by being a doctor and leveraging the digital resources at my fingertips to touch 200 plus musicians instead of just five. But the same energy and the same desire to make a positive impact on these blues musicians who helped my life in such profound ways, um, I was able to do it on a broader scale, having more knowledge, having more experience, having more assets and having more resources. So uh, my beliefs have always fundamentally been the same. I just think I'm at a point in my life where I can do bigger and better things for these communities that um, 
I've been intending to help from the get-go. At the same time, you're releasing a new album um, with the Chicago Blues All-Stars, Red Hot and Blue. How do you prioritize your time? And, and then how do, you, how, do you, how do you manage promoting the band when you have such a busy medical life? It's really hard. Um, but what's happened, I've had to lead parallel lives. I've had to be the doctor, I've had to be the musician, I've had to be the media guy, the media personality. And at some point, everything became one. So now, Dr. Dan, Chicago Slim, the blues doctor, period. I mean, I don't, I'm not diminished by musicians by saying, oh yeah, he's a doctor. No, I'm a blues doctor. They know who I am and what I do. I've, um, I've been able to establish my process to where I dress in my clinic cool enough to where I can leave my clinic and go on any bandstand and still look cool. My outfits transcend. I don't have to like leave. I never wear a suit. I wear cool um, scrubs that are all initialized and customized for me. So if I um, decide to take off my surgical cap and throw on a Kangol, I can put on a guitar and still look good. And people aren't going to go, oh my God, that's a doctor on stage. It's, it looks cool. And I think the point is that um, I got sick and tired of having to try and somehow be a doctor for my medical community and be a musician for my musician community. When it got to the point where I'd be in clinic and with the internet, once again, my musicians would go, oh my God, doc, I watched your video, man. You are one bad blah, blah, blah on guitar. And uh, I just realized that it's all connected. It doesn't matter. I'm me. I do all these things. And that's all happening under this brain, under this body. And so I've kind of morphed it all into just one being, one set of skills that happen to be medical, musical, and radio. And people have accepted me for that. So from a time standpoint, it's all one or the other. So I'll be in the middle of a clinic. I get a text from uh, the manager, buddy guy saying, hey, you want to do a date? I say, sure, what date? I mean, it's now a text instead of, I don't have to have my manager call them or my booking agent. They call me. And so, you know, trying to um, trying to kind of uh, streamline and simplify it. I think I'm at the point in my life where um, it does work really easily and simple and it's almost like effortless. I don't have to work to do this. I just have to be and I have to be available. And so the, the next step is gonna be very interesting because in the context of one patient, we had, uh, I've had the Chicago Blues Society for 20 years now. And during the pandemic, we actually spun it off from one patient because Chicago Blues Society was intended, you know, you promote the blues culture but our mission was primarily on um, preserving the health and wellness of musicians, keeping the blues musicians alive. I mean, I hate to say it. I hate that. I hate the terminology, keeping the blues alive. What the hell does that mean, keeping the blues alive? To me, you can't have blues without blues musicians, right? And so for me, we're into keeping blues musicians alive. And um, additionally, I work very closely with Fernando Jones, who has an incredible program called Blues Kids. You'd love talking to him, uh, but he provides mentorship, teaching of uh, blues to kids all over the world. 
and we're going to be working together hopefully in the next year but we we have a facility that we've um located and we're gonna we're gonna be there and uh it's gonna be pretty wild and crazy but i think we're gonna be able to put all these components under one roof so chicago blue society is now 501c3 not-for-profit as is one patient and then we have other non-for-profits we work in synergy with to establish sort of this greater footprint of um you know health and wellness at-risk youth, I mean, this is Chicago. I mean, so many children are in the balance. And I think uh, Fernando and I and many other people that are going to come together now, I think we'll be able to extend our um, reach to where um, we can help thousands of kids in the city and thousands of musicians under that one. We're not just, we're not just relegating it to blues. During uh, COVID, I helped country, rock, heavy metal, industrial house musicians. And we opened up our um, panel to any musician that wants to live a healthier life. And so it, it's interesting how it all comes together, but I think um, I'm very excited about the prospects for the future. And I, and I do see that um, there's, my life is seamless. Your question was, how do you do all these things and have time? They're all one now. Tell me about in 2015 when you got um, recognized by CNN as one of the top heroes. What did that mean to you? Um, I'm very thankful. I'm very honored. It was really cool to um, be introduced by Common, who I have known since he sort of was an emerging artist in Chicago. But I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with these quote-unquote hero awards. Honestly, I'm just doing my job. I'm doing what I um, was trained to do. As a, uh, as a physician, as a healer, uh, I took an oath. I take that oath very seriously. The Hippocratic Oath is not something that I, um, I take lightly. And so it's a little bit humbling to have an award of that magnitude. But at the same time, I shake my head and saying, this is what every doctor should be doing. What's the state of Chicago blues today? How do you view that? Because you've come from a time when when you learned from the greats and, and the legendary players. Tell me about Chicago blues today and going forward. How do you view it? I think it's in a precarious state right now because um, the city of Chicago really, you know, it's a typical governmental monolith. They don't really do anything particularly well or efficiently on behalf of the culture. And sort of when the blues evolved, it did it in its own incubator. I don't feel there's enough young talent being developed in the marketplace. Um, it's getting older and it's getting sort of the same old, same old. There's not anything exciting and challenging coming out. I mean, we certainly have some great talents that are in the marketplace. But I, I worry more about what's going to happen in 10 to 15 years. Um, during the pandemic, we lost a couple of major clubs. I'm hoping to correct some of that by um, having a club at the new facility. That's my hope. But, you know, working with um, Fernando Jones, that's been part of our ongoing discussion is um, from our standpoint, what are we doing to preserve the uh, culture of Chicago blues, the electrified version that inspired the world? 
and how do we get younger people, black, white, brown, male, female, to want to participate? I mean, it's so much harder now. Back in the 50s and 60s, blues and R&B, that was the predominant form in black music. Now you're competing with hip hop, with rap. And, you know, how can we inspire kids to bring their interest in that over to blues and maybe make it new, fresh? Um, I'm not a believer in, um, in keeping it old and dated. I believe to me, um, when they go, well, that's not real blues. Well, you know, blues in its heyday was scoffed at. I mean, you know, black music has always sort of had an edge to it. Blues music was the state of the art, the electrified muddy water stuff in the 50s and 60s. That's what black people were listening to. I mean, I work, my wife and I, Dr. Carla, we were the only white media personalities on WVON. Purvis Band was one of my idols. WVON was the voice of the Negro. That was chess records that they had 3 million listeners. And that's what they were playing blues. They were playing Muddy. They were playing Elmore James. They were playing Little Walter to this audience. That was the state of the art in the 50s and 60s. The problem with the blues is people want to stay bogged down in what was happening seven decades ago. And black music has evolved so profoundly. And I call, I mean, I consider rap and hip hop in many ways, the good rap and hip hop that has a message. If you listen to the lyrics and not get absorbed in the music, it's a reflection of the state of black culture today. And there's some great guys like Twista and Chance the Rapper who's here. They're, they're, they're not, they're not talking about misogynist nonsense. They're actually talking about life and reality. And so I think, um, you know, when we talk about blues, I think it's finding a path to bridge the tradition with the here and now and getting young people to be excited by it. I mean, when I, when I was in high school, all my black friends from basketball, they wanted nothing to do with the blues. And then I would take them to a club and they go, oh man, this is awesome. Or we go down to Maxwell Street and they thought it was the most amazing thing to go to the open air market, buy some eight tracks because there was an element of fun, an element of, you know, kind of like why I got off on the checkerboard lounge. Like, well, the experience was amazing. So we have to figure out a way to, um, to just get younger people excited, like jam bands. There's so many blues bands now that are playing on the jam band circuit and jam band fans are digging the blues. So we just have to find a way to bridge this uniquely American form, you know, gospel, country and blues, they're, they're true Americana music. And how do we get young people to, um, to dig the blues? I think that is the million dollar question, but that is, that's a big priority for Fernando and me. Well, Dr. Dan, I got to wrap this up, but I want to thank you for this. You're doing some amazing work. And for people who don't know about what you're doing, they should go to your website, chicagoslim.com, and find out about all the different things you're involved in. Let me ask you one final question. Tell me if you can quantify what Blues has given you. Wow. What Blues has given me... A new lease on life. It's given me confidence. It's given me the insight into all people. And it's given me an ability to connect with people on a level that I never would have had without it. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you.